1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, do not, but do not have love, I am nothing. I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For we now see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, we have seen in our study through 1 Corinthians 13 thus far, as it follows on the heels of the statements on the, the spiritual gifts, as great as the spiritual gifts are, through which the Lord Jesus fills all in all upon this earth, Paul makes it very clear that the greatest of all things in the Christian life is not the spiritual gifts. It is the manifestation of love. And so we see here that love excels all things. Charitable acts, self-sacrificing of one's life without love is said to be nothing. And we need to really appreciate this and be sober-minded as we look at the Word of God. Because it says it is possible to give away large amounts of money without a heart of love. It's possible to sacrifice literally your life for other people, as the Scripture says, and really not have love. So when God's Word says that these acts are nothing, it means just that. From God's point of view, it means absolutely nothing. These great feats mean, from God's point of view, nothing on Judgment Day if there's not love present. That's how important love is. So what we must understand, what we must allow to sink into the very depths of our heart is that we are rushing towards Judgment Day, all of us. And it's not a matter of what you and I think. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. See, I can think something is great, 
But because I think it or you think it, it really doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what God thinks and what God says about it. Because on Judgment Day, it's not going to be myself that will have any word to say. It's not going to be any other person. It's going to be what Jesus says. Jesus is our judge on Judgment Day. And so, in this regard, we all are going to be standing before Christ's tribunal. And the only thing that will matter is what Jesus will say to us. No. It seems like all the time a very notable, famous person dies. Whether they were very wealthy or they were famous, I'm always reminded. We're all going to die. We're all mortal. I don't care who you are, how much money you have, how much uh, fame that you had. We're all going to die. And and those who have died are going to be facing judgment day. So what is Jesus going to say? And so the greatest, as I've mentioned to you before, the greatest charitable contribution in history several years ago began in 2008, where this man, over five years, gave $35 billion away. Do you realize how big a billion is? I mean, it's, it's an astronomical amount of money. Uh, just a billion dollars is unbelievable. Over five years, and in, in coming in 2013, he will have given away $35 billion. So far, he's not a professing Christian. Perhaps he may be one of God's elect. I pray that he is. I don't like to see anybody go to hell. But unless something changes on Judgment Day, he won't be able to say, I gave $35 billion. If he's not one of, if he doesn't repent, I'm paraphrasing here, Jesus will say, so, so what? You know, one can get the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the highest honor that anybody can receive. And it's usually given posthumously because the recipient is dead, because they did something sacrificing their lives for other people. But I don't care if this soldier gave his life for his squad if if he wasn't a Christian. Jesus will say, so... You didn't do it for my glory. You didn't do it out of love for me. You didn't do it according to the word of God. See, when the scripture says it profits nothing, it means that is to be taken very seriously. So I say all of these things to remind all of us to have a true assessment of our lives and the way we're living And that how we are to to govern our lives, how we're to live our lives before the world, how we're to live our lives before our, our, in the presence of our families, how we're to treat each other. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And his commandments are not different from the commandments that we read in scriptures. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill the law in every respect, to confirm the law. So everything that he did was to, to magnify the law. As I've said before, biblical Christianity is set apart from other religions of the world in this regard of love. 
Because the essence of Christianity is not mere outward conformity to some legal code. That's not the essence of our faith. It is from the heart where it loves our neighbors as ourselves, and by that means we show our love of God. Let's consider, for example, just one of the major religions of the world. Let's consider Islam for a moment. The essence of Islam is that it is an outward religion. You see, you can be a good Muslim, or a good Muslim will pray several times a day facing Mecca. So when the time of prayer comes, I know one of my children at a restaurant saw outside a major restaurant, a group lay down their mats and pray towards Mecca. That's expected. But you see, you can be a good Muslim, and you can be justified, according to Islam, in going and stealing from the infidels and killing the infidels. It's in the Quran. And who are the infidels? Us. Anybody that's not Muslim is an infidel. Have you ever seen the Muslim protests and their signs of hatred before? On February 6th of 2006, just go on the Internet, just Google in Muslim protests, signs. And one of the first things that will come up is this London protest in 2006 where they took to the streets And the reason they took to the streets was because of a publication in Scandinavian periodicals of a cartoon that made fun of the Prophet Muhammad. And when that cartoon came out, all over the world, they took the streets. Now, here's what some of the signs, you go and look at the signs yourself. Here are what some of the signs said. I'm reading you exactly as the signs read. Slay those who insult Islam. Behead those who insult Islam. Butcher those who mock Islam. Europe, you will pay. Your extermination is on its way. Exterminate those who slander Islam. Europe, take some lessons from 9-11. Europe, you will pay. Your 9-11 is on the way. And then be prepared for the real Holocaust. These were actual signs of those who protested in London in 2006. I am surprised, even in today's humanistic society, the, the civil authorities should never have allowed that kind of protest with those signs. You can't yell fire in the theater. And when you have a you have a sign that says, I'm gonna you ought to be beheaded for this, your nine eleven's come, that's provocative. That's advocating violence. They should never allow that. They should have shut that thing down just like that. Islam has spread historically by conquest and murder. That's how Muhammad came to power. That's how they took over most of the known world at its time. 
And it has been the long-term enemy of Christianity. Just recently, I won't give credit to the state of Kansas. Just this past week, the state of Kansas passed in both houses of its legislature a law banning Sharia law in the state of Kansas. It passed the state house 120 to 0. It passed the state senate 33 to 3. It was signed by the governor of the state. The law has been dubbed as the Sharia bill because critics say it targets the Islamic legal code. Sharia or Islamic law governs all aspects of Muslim life, including religious obligations and financial dealings. Legislators supporting the bill said there are many cases around the country where judges or state agencies cited Sharia law in terms of deciding divorce-related custody, uh, custody hearings, property ma- uh, matters where Islamic code differs from the United States law. What Kansas said was the law of the United States is going to govern the people in our state, not the Sharia law of the Muslims. Kudos to Kansas. <laughs> Twenty other states have similar legislation pending, but Kansas is the first. As a result of that, the Council of American Islamic Relations in Washington denounced the Kansas law and said it's considering legal action against the state of Kansas. Well, <clears throat> brethren, I only mention this to you that <clears throat> this is not unusual that the essence of a religious faith is not some conformity to legal code that simultaneously advocates hatred towards other people like this. You know, the only true religion in the world is that of Christian, the Christian faith and obedience to God's law. And how is the law of God summarized in the Scriptures? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, and we've got to be reminded of what the Lord Jesus said. He says, not everybody who calls unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Who does the will of my Father? And, and what is the will of the Father? Keep my commandments. And as I've said to you before, 1 John 4, 20, 21 says, How can we say that we love God whom we have not seen if we can't love men whom we have seen? We demonstrate that we love God by loving our neighbor. And that's why the scripture does say we show the love of God by loving our neighbor. And that's why... The law can be summarized in Galatians as it is the fulfillment of the law, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, before I get into the specifics of today's message on another aspect of love, about the fact that it's not arrogant, does not brag, I need for us all to ask ourselves some sobering questions again today. For example, what does my husband or my wife say about my actions? On an ongoing basis. 
Children, what do your parents say is your attitude towards them and others? Love is the essence of our faith. It's the essence of it. It all comes down to this. It really does. Now let's look what the scripture says in our text is another aspect of biblical love. Notice what verse 4 says. Love not only is patient, kind, it's not jealous. Today we're going to look at love does not brag and it is not arrogant. Turn with me to, uh, here's God's attitude towards the opposite of love. Turn with me to Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. So when it says love does not brag and is not arrogant, we're getting the attitude, the perspective of God here. God says, the fear of the Lord is to honor him, but it says he hates pride, he hates arrogance. And we're going to see today just why God hates pride and arrogance in his creatures. Turn with me to James chapter 4. And let's look at verses 5 through 7. James 4, verses 5 through 7. Would well, you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously, jealously, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we're going to see here that one of the strategies of the, of the devil is for there to be pride and arrogance present. By the way, is that not one of the very essence of the fall of that great angel who became the devil because of of arrogance, trying to be like God, tempted the woman, we saw last week, to make her jealous that God possessed something that she didn't have, and that is the knowledge of good and evil. And here, the, the, the whole purpose of here about the fall was for the woman to end up deciding for herself what is truth, not what God said, and as a consequence... What happened? She fell into sin. As we're going to see in a verse in a moment, where does pride lead? It leads to our fall. And it led to the first fall in Adam and Eve. Pride. The idea of wanting to be like God. The opposite of being proud and arrogant in the Scripture is humility. That's the opposite. Being humble, not being proud. God resists, what did the text in James say? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he resists, obviously, the proud out there as unbelievers, but then he resists the proud even among those who are his children when that ugly sin raises itself. So what we see here, the scripture says, 
in Psalm 73, verse 6, that passage says that the necklace of unbelievers is pride. The necklace, the showpiece, the, that which is valued is pride. That's the, that's the nature of the unbelievers, is being a proud person. In this passage that we looked at last week, in Psalm 73, Psalm 73 has the idea there of the, the godly man saying, my foot almost slipped because I became envious, jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. But then the text also says there in verses 5 and 6, he says, of being envious of the arrogant and of the proud. That is how the, the unbeliever is seen. They're arrogant. They're a proud people. That's, that's the nature of unbelief. So pride, arrogance, boasting. Remember what our text in 1 Corinthians 13 says? Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Bragging is just a part of an arrogant heart. It's the, the showing forth of an arrogant heart. And we're going to see that love and pride, they're opposites. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. This is what's indicative of the non-Christian life. Look at 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, one of the three things that are mentioned there is indicative of of those who do not manifest the love of God is the boastful pride of life. Like God says, he hates it. And so the pride of life and love, they are antagonists in the Scripture. Love is humble. It's not arrogant. It doesn't brag. It doesn't exalt itself. That's not what love does. That's not what humility does. As I noted earlier, God hates That's his term. God hates the proud. Proverbs 8. He opposes the proud person. Now why, do we ask, why does God detest pride so much? Why is that? Well, here's the reason. Pride displaces man's relationship before the living God. Pride makes one as God. Pride makes one think that he or she is the source of all the gifts that they possess. Not God as the source, but ourselves. What we've done by our own resources. We noted last week that there is a holy jealousy with God, right? There's a holy jealousy, and then there's a sinful jealousy. And the dominant trait in Scripture is the sinful jealousy. But God is jealous of what? That there is to be no rivals to himself. No rivals to God. I'm the only God. 
There is no other besides me, says the Lord. And therefore, <clears throat> pride <clears throat> makes one thing that they are the source of the blessings that they receive in life. But what is the reality? God's the source of everything that comes to us good. God is. God has no rivals. God tolerates no rivals to himself. And anything that robs God of his glory is arrogance on the part of the creature. You know, Isaiah 48.11 is a great passage, and it says, the last part of that passage says, God says, my glory I will not give to another. God will not share his glory with anybody. Not, not anyone. I am God. There is no one else. So the essence of pride is that it exalts man. It gives the glory to man and not God. It makes man as God, and that's why God hates it. God hates idolatry. Why? Because it is a pretended rival to himself. It's no real threat to God, but God understands it's a rival. It's, it's setting up and acknowledging someone else than himself as the source of all things, as the governor of the universe. And so it transfers the glory from God to men. And that's why God hates pride, why he hates arrogance, and why love is not a braggart, why love is not arrogant. You know, actually, when men worship idols, what are they actually doing? They're worshiping themselves, right? Because who created the idols? Men. And that's why... In Scripture, in Isaiah, there's that mockery of God on the part of the idols. They're the creation of men's hands. It makes no sense. That's why God detests it. And you're going to worship this. You're going to acknowledge this. And this is God's term, a stupid idol as the source of everything and not me. That's kind of arrogant of yourself, don't you think, God says. And so the essence of unbelief in today's vernacular is humanism. And the, uh, what is the nature of humanism? That man is the center of the universe. That man is the source of truth. That man is the source of ethics, that which is right and wrong. That man decides for himself that which is true. You see, the essence of unbelieving thought is pride. And that's why God says that's why their necklace is pride, it says of the unbeliever. It is the exaltation of man. That's what pride is. It makes man as God. <clears throat> you know, one of the blasphemous beliefs of Mormonism is this most famous quote from the second president of the Mormon church, Lorenzo Snow, who in 1840 made this declaration. And by the way, the Mormon president speaks inerrantly. He has revelatory power, according to Mormonism. Here's what Lorenzo Snow said, and it stayed with us for almost 
200 years now. Here's his quote. As man is, God once was. As God is, man shall become. In the words of one of the Mormon apostles, Bruce McConkie, he said this in one of his books, Mormon Doctrine. Thus, those who gain eternal life receive exaltation. They are gods, end of quote. And if there's any doubt as to what Mormonism teaches, consider the prophet himself, Joseph Smith. In a message that he gave to 20,000 people on April 6th, 1844, this is what Joseph Smith said, quote, Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, end of quote, Joseph Smith. And then the next most famous name is Brigham Young, who led the Mormons to Utah. Here's what Brigham Young said, quote, he gave this message in, on August 8, 1852. He said, the Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself, end of quote. So consider this fact in November this year, when you have a choice to vote for the incumbent or most likely his alternative. And what law will rule, regardless who wins. Here are some of the attitudes of pride that the scripture gives. Okay, turn with me to Jeremiah 48, 29. Jeremiah 48, 29. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. I mentioned that verse there to talk about a nation of people and what is indicative of those in rebellion against God. And this is God's assessment of them. Proud, arrogant, self-exalted. Turn with me to Jeremiah 49, verse 16. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Now this is said to the nation of Edom. If you want to learn more about this, you're going to have to come to the family conference. And hear my message on Obadiah, because we've all been assigned one of the minor prophets. And my assignment was to preach on Obadiah. And Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. And right here in Jeremiah is the prophecy against Edom. The Edomites thought, hey, we are up here on a cliff, and nobody can get to us. And God says, really? We'll see about that. I will bring you down, he says, from this place. And he said, you have this arrogant heart that you are self-sufficient. We'll see about that, God says. See, that's just indicative of the heart of unbelief. And why it's so ugly when it shows itself up in the, in, in the Christian life, though we're not in bondage to it. 
And so we see this boasting flows out of this pride of life. And God knows how to humble the proud, doesn't he? You know, when I think of pride among uh, unbelievers, one of the most notable examples in all of the Word of God is that of King Nebuchadnezzar. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Now, before we talk about Daniel chapter 4, let me just mention Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before a fall. It goes before destruction. Pride goes before a fall. And I should mention one other verse to you before we look at Daniel. Let me just read for you what Proverbs 29, 23 says. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. A man's pride will bring him low. All right, turn now, look at Daniel 4, and let's start at verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. All of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, Babylon was something else. The walls of Babylon, you could drive, from what I understand, a couple chariots on the walls of Babylon. In Babylon was one of the ancient wonders of the world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were quite impressive to the point they were considered one of the wonders of the world. So Nebuchadnezzar is looking out and he says, look what I have done. While the word was in the king's mouth, he didn't get it all out when God says. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time, meaning seven years, will pass over you until you recognize, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Yeah, I'll make a movie about that. That'd be a good picture, wouldn't it? But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Now, at the end of seven years of crawling around like a wild beast, he comes to his senses, right? He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes toward heaven. Not towards his great kingdom, but towards heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. Stop right there for a second. When it says God resists the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. He's now humbled, isn't he? This humble, this humble king now is praising God. And it's a wonderful prayer. It's one of the greatest uh, testimonies I know in Scripture. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I mean, he had a good testimony, didn't he? Some say, can I have a witness? Nebuchadnezzar said, I got a witness. He knows how to humble the proud. There was no greater, more proud man than Nebuchadnezzar. But he was humbled, and in his humility, he acknowledges that God is the source of all these things now. Not himself. And so, you know, when I think of pride today and unbelievers, I cannot get out of my mind, and for years... For years he was, I don't know if you knew this, he may have been displaced, I don't know. But several years ago, he was the most well-known person in the world. He was an athlete. You know who he was? Muhammad Ali was the most well-known sports figure, and even beyond that, in the world. As a young person, I will never forget Cassius Clay was his name, his given name, who, <clears throat> when he knocked out Sonny Liston in the 60s, in the first round, in the famous mystical blow in boxing, he raised his hands and, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. In his interviews with the commentator, the, the, the famous sports commentator of the time, Howard Cosell, Muhammad Ali would say that. He says, Howard, he says, I'm the greatest, I'm the prettiest, I float like a butterfly, and I sting like a bee, Howard. So those of you that want to know where that term, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, came from Muhammad Ali. I will never forget, uh, I mean, those statements are kind of humorous, but they're really sad. If there was ever a boaster, it was Muhammad Ali. I'll never forget the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta. You know who they had to take and light the flame of the Olympic torch to, to start the Olympic Games? Muhammad Ali. But he wasn't floating like a butterfly. Wasn't floating like a butterfly then. Because he was inflicted with Parkinson's disease. He could hardly stumble on the stage when you look at him. He has this glazed look of all the head blows that he took over those years 
as a boxer. Probably began in the famous boxing match in it's called The Thriller in Manila with Joe Fraser, who died just recently. Where <clears throat> those who never did hit Muhammad Ali, Joe Fraser, in 15 rounds, just pummeled Muhammad Ali and gave him one of his first major defeats ever. Probably where the head damage was done. It was just a, well, you know how I view boxing. I think it's an ungodly sport. Along with UFC fighting and all of that, I think it's ungodly. But here is someone who boasted, who was known for his uh, talk of pride and all. But he is a humble God has brought him low. There is no place for bragging. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Boasting comes from a self-exaltation. That's where it comes from. It comes from glorying. Find oneself, not God. Now, boasting is what? Trusting in one's own abilities, right? Turn with me to uh, Proverbs, I mean, Psalms 33. Psalm 33, verse 16 through verse 22. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let Thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according to as we have hoped in Thee. So what we see here, well, have you ever seen the the clips of the parade in Red Square in Moscow? It's usually to celebrate <clears throat> several things, the communist takeover of Russia and what they put their trust in. So they have the, uh, the premier there, and what's passing? The whole parade is a military parade of tanks, soldiers, artillery guns. That's what they, they were imperialists. That's what they put their hope in, their military conquest. That's what they are exalting. That's what they believe is their destiny to have conquest militarily. God's brought them down low, just like he's brought down all other empires who are imperialistic, who <clears throat> trusted themselves. Turn with me to Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Yeah, that's a, that's a great passage. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. As a Christian, have you ever been tempted, if you've done something of great value, to want to tell somebody? Tell a family member what you did? Tell someone in the church what you did? 
I mean, sort of a, it's kind of a human nature thing because pride is part of the, of the fallen nature. But the scripture says, let another praise you and not yourself. In other words, there's no place for, <laughs> there is no place for boasting like this in the Christian life. Y'all take that with the heart. Regardless of all the things you do in act of kindness, let someone else say it. Hey, the person who gave away all the billions of dollars, he could have done it privately. No one could have known about it. See? <clears throat> he says, do not boast or praise yourself. If there's anything done that's worthy of praise, then someone else will notice it. But then be careful... <laughs> Be careful of saying, I hope somebody recognizes that. I, I'm not going to be guilty of boasting in myself. But I sure hope Les sees it and tells me about it. Or tells everybody else about it. You see, at that point, it's pride now because I want somebody. I hope somebody tells somebody. Well, then, you see, I've defeated that purpose then, right? Now, it's, it's, it's pride. I want to be recognized for what I've done. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love is humble. You know, whereas boasting is indicative of the non-Christian life, there's no place for that kind of pride in the Christian life. Take a look at uh, Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the King answer us in the day we call. See how that fits in with the other passages? Pride goes before a fall. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. God exalts, he brings down the proud, but exalts the humble. And so here is why love and pride are opposites. There is no place of pride in the Christian. There should not be any place for pride. Why? Because God has given us everything as His people by a gracious gift. A gracious gift. Grace means you don't earn it, right? It's been given to you and me. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. It's a great passage. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What we have, what did we receive but was not given to us as Christians? Everything was given to us as Christians. There's no place for pride in the Christian. Specialists begin with salvation because he's talking about that. Men have a tendency to, in many regards, to trust in their own abilities. For example, in the gaining of wealth. They have a tendency to trust in their own abilities. 
Turn with me to, to Deuteronomy 8. See what God has to say about that. Deuteronomy 8. Look at verses 11 through 18. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 11. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and in his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart becomes what? Proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. See, the tendency is for us in our pride and in our arrogance to think that we are the masters of our own destiny. That we have done something that, that is merited and deserves all of this and by our own abilities that we have gotten this wealth that God gives. And let's say he gives great wealth. And God says, no, what you have is by my gracious hand. And whatever wealth you have, I'm the one that gave you that ability to get it. I don't care who you are. Even the unbelievers. You're using my resources, aren't you? God says. You live in my world. You're using my resources. And you've acquired this wealth by my good hand that you even have what you have. You see, when we obey God, for example, in giving of his tithe, we are acknowledging that he is the source of all material blessing to his people. See, that's really what the tithe is. It's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over us, and it's what God expects us to give back to him, recognizes his, recognizing his sovereignty in that what we have is by his good hand. So when we don't obey God, for example, in tithing, then we are trusting what? In ourselves. And not in God who can provide. The bottom line is always faith in the promises of God. That's what the bottom line always is. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3, it's called Hannah's Song. And in Hannah's song, Hannah sings... Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance ever come out of your mouth. It's part of Hannah's song. Whereas boasting is usually a negative thing in the scripture, there is a positive boasting. There really is. You know where it is? Turn to Jeremiah 9. 
Look at verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So there is a holy boasting. There's a holy jealousy. There's a holy boasting. But the boasting is in the Lord. What the Lord has given us. Not in our own strength, not in our own abilities. You know, Psalm 34, verse 2 says, My soul will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. The humble do boast, but not in themselves, they boast in the Lord. What is the greatest thing that God has given us? Salvation, right? That's the greatest thing He's given to us. Turn to Ephesians 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We can't even boast of our salvation. It was a gift of God. Turn over to Romans 4. Look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, the salvation that's given to us, that justification by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is ultimately a gift. Yes, we respond. Yes, we repent. Yes, we believe. But that ability comes from God. He has to regenerate the heart, right? And therefore, it says, it's not by any good works that we have done. It's His gracious gift to us. We shouldn't boast about it. And then we have this great passage in 1 Corinthians 1. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verses 25 to 31. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the holy boasting is a boasting in the Lord God who gave us salvation as a free gift. We didn't earn it. We aren't justified by ourselves. We didn't do anything to merit it. 
Not only does he give us the food to eat, the ability to get wealth, he gives us his salvation. You know this idea, <clears throat> this is one of the sad uh, faults of Armenian theology. The sad thing about Armenian theology is that it exalts man power, man's power in doing something that God must wait upon me to do. Now think about it. If according to that theology, that God cannot act until I, of my own free will, independent of God, has to act, who gets the glory? Really? Who gets the glory? Man, not God. And that's what's the ultimate fault of that theology. It's not glorifying to God because it, it robs God of his glory. God is the one who saves. He's the one who has regenerated our heart. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We deserve to go to hell. And God has rescued us. Not because of anything we did. Because he was gracious to us. He rescued us. It was all God. We can't pat ourselves on the back. And that's why the humble person acknowledges the Lord has saved me. Hallelujah, the Lord has saved me, not myself. The humble in heart renounces this proud, self-sufficient spirit. This is why Psalm 51.5 says, Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Love is not a braggart. Love is not arrogant. Love doesn't exalt itself. Love is humility. Love boasts in the Lord. Love is not self-sufficient. It finds a soul sufficiency in God. It does not exalt itself. That's why love is the greatest of all things. It is the fruit of the Spirit. May humility mark us, brethren. May humility mark us, not pride. Let us pray.